Chapter Four, Part Three of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten, Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the Second Star Root Trial, Part Three of Twenty Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones. Part three. Closing address to the jury in the second star root trial. The next claim is, although there is no conspiracy until after they got the contracts, that Senator Dorsey was interested in these contracts while he was a senator of the United States. If they could establish that fact, it would not tend to establish a conspiracy. There is nothing in this indictment about it. I admit that if he were a senator and at the same time interested in mail contracts, he might be tried and his robes of office stripped from him, and that he would be rendered infamous, but that is not what he is being tried for. They say he was in the Senate, and he was anxious to keep it secret. Mr. Kerr says he was so anxious to keep it secret that he sent all these communications out west in Senate envelopes, so they would think a senator had something to do with it. Then it turned out that all the envelopes were in blank, just plain white envelopes, with nothing on them, and away went that theory. If he were in the Senate, and engaged in these routes also, and wished to keep it a profound secret, because if known it would blast his reputation forever, do you think he would have had all these circulars sent out in Senate envelopes and on Senate paper? If he did allow that to be done, it is absolutely conclusive that he was not interested. Suppose I was trying to keep it an absolute secret, profound, eternal, everlasting secret, that I had anything to do with a certain matter. Would I write letters about it? Would I use paper that had my name, the number of my office, and the character of my business printed on it? Would I? To ask that question is to answer it. One other thing. They claimed that he was in the Senate, and infinitely anxious to keep it a secret, and yet he found Mr. Moore, a perfect stranger, and said to him, in effect, Yes, Mr. Moore, I don't know you, but I want you to know me. I am a rascal. I am a member of the Senate, but I am engaged in mail routes. I hope you will not tell anybody, because it would destroy me. I have great confidence in you, because I don't know you. That is the only way he could have had confidence in Moore. He would have had to have it in the first time he saw him, or it never would have come. To this perfect stranger he said, Here I am in the Senate, but I am interested in these mail routes. I am in a conspiracy. I want you to go out and attend to this business. I want you to do all these things, and the reason I tell you is because I am a senator, and I want it kept a profound secret. That is the reason I tell you. That is what these gentlemen call probable. That is their idea of reasonableness and of what is natural. Well, that may be true in a world where water always runs uphill. It can never be true in this world. It is not in accordance with your experience. Not a man here 
has any experience in accordance with that testimony or that doctrine not one you will never have unless you become insane if this trial lasts much longer you may have that experience it is a wonder to me it has not happened already there is another queer circumstance connected with this case while dorsey told it all to moore he kept it a profound secret from boone boone you know was in at the first boone got up all this information boone was interested in these beds and yet he dorsey never told boone he had known boone you see for several weeks he told moore the first day the first minute he wished to relieve his stuffed bosom of that secret moore was the first empty thing he found and he poured it into him it is astonishing to me that he succeeded in keeping that secret from boone but he did he even kept it from brodell brodell never heard of it a gentleman who picks up every scrap who listens at the keyhole of an opportunity for the fragment of a sound he never heard it john w dorsey did not even know anything about it nobody but more now i ask you gentlemen is there any sense in that story i ask you i ask you also if the testimony of stephen w dorsey with regard to that transaction is not absolutely consistent with itself did he not in every one of those transactions act like a reasonable sensible good man oh but they say it is not natural for a man to help his brother certainly it is not natural for a man to help his brother-in-law and nobody but a hardened scoundrel would help a friend and dorsey is not that kind of man occasionally in a case an accident will happen and from an unexpected quarter a sidelight will be thrown upon the character of a man sometimes for good sometimes for evil sometimes a little circumstance will come out that will cover a man with infamy something that nobody expected to prove and that leaps out of the dark then again sometimes by a similar accident a man will be covered with glory in this case there was a little fact that came to the service about stephen w dorsey that made me proud that i was defending him oh he is not the man to help his brother he is not the man to help his brother-in-law he is not the man to help a friend and yet when tory was upon the stand he was asked if he was working for dorsey and he said no and was asked if dorsey paid him at a certain time or if he owed him and he said no he was asked why and he replied because only a little while before when i was not working for him and my boy was dead he gave me a thousand dollars to put him beneath the sod that is the kind of a man stephen w dorsey is i like such people a man capable of doing that is capable of helping his brother of helping his brother-in-law and of helping his friend a man capable of doing that is capable of any great and splendid action is there any other man connected with this trial that ever did a more generous nay a more loving and lovely thing how such a man can excite the hatred of the prosecution is more than i can understand now we have got to the division and the question arises was there a division let us see on page five thousand and nine mr bliss admits that vale immediately upon dorsey's coming out of the senate came here for the purpose of settling up this business 
that he made up his mind to have no more to do with Dorsey. Then Mr. Bliss makes this important admission, and I do not want any attorney for the government to deny it. He, Bliss, admits that in May there was a final division, and that that division was to take effect from the first day of April, and that after that each party took the routes allotted to him, and they became the uncontrolled property of that person, no other person having the right to interfere. There is your admission, just as broad as it can be made. Mr. Bliss, after having made that admission, which virtually gives up the government's case, then drew a sheet anchor to the wind and said, but when they divided, they made a bargain with each other that they would make the necessary papers. What for? To carry out the division, that is all. Now the only cornerstone for this conspiracy, the only pebble left in the entire foundation, is the agreement to make the necessary papers after the division. That is all that is left. The rest has been dissolved or dug up and carted away by this admission. Let us see what that agreement was. Mr. Bliss turned to the evidence of John W. Dorsey on page 4105. Question. At the time you sold out, was there any understanding about your making papers? Answer. That was a part of the agreement. I was to sign all the necessary papers to carry on the business. When he sold out, he agreed to sign all the necessary papers. It is like this. Mr. Bliss says on such a day, for instance, they divided. Suppose instead of being roots, it was all land. They divided the land, and then they agreed to make the deeds. That was the conspiracy. Not in the land, not in the agreement about the land, and not in the bargain, but in the execution of the papers in consequence of the bargain. That was the conspiracy. They agreed to make all the necessary papers. That was the agreement. Then the court asked John W. Dorsey a question. You agreed to sign what? Answer, all the necessary papers to carry on the business. That is what he agreed to do. What else? What were those papers? First, they were to sign all the subcontracts that are necessary all the post office drafts necessary, and they were to sign letters like this. The post office department, in regard to this route, will herefore send all communications to the underside. In other words, the object was to let the person who fell heir to a given route in the division control that route. That was all. The man who was the contractor agreed that he would sign all the necessary papers. For what purpose? To allow each man who got a route to be the owner of it and control it and draw the money. That is all. And yet this is considered rascality? Let me call your attention to another piece of evidence on this subject. On page 5016, Mr. Bliss is talking about all these papers and these letters that were written and apparently signed by Peck, but really signed by Minor, saying... I want you to send all communications in reference to such a route to post office box number so-and-so. John M. Peck. Sometimes with an M under it, and sometimes without. He did that in consideration of the agreement at the time he got the routes that had been originally allotted to Peck. 
Mr. Bliss brought here a vast number of these papers, and then he continued, on page 5017, All those, gentlemen, are orders, dated after the division, many of them coming away down into 1881, and all of them relating to Roos, with which Peck had no connection, because he severed his connection with all these roots prior to the 1st of April, or as of the 1st of April, 1879. John W. Dorsey tells you that he signed the papers right along. Of course he did. He agreed to. And I have here a series of them. Many of them are orders not in blank. There are among the papers orders signed in blank, but these are dated, and they are witnessed not always by the same person, as indicating that they got together and signed a lot of orders at the same time of the division. There is every indication that the dates are correct. The witnesses are different at different times. The court. These same orders would have been made if the division had been perfectly honest. That is what I say. That is what we all say, gentlemen. If the transaction then had been perfectly honest, the papers would have been precisely as they are. From the papers being precisely as they are, do they tend to show that the transaction was dishonest? when it is admitted by everybody and decided by the court that if the transaction had been perfectly honest the papers would have been just as they are recollect my text every fact when you are proving a circumstantial case has to point to the guilt of the defendants and their guilt has to be found from all the facts in the case beyond a reasonable doubt if there is one fact inconsistent with their guilt the case is gone there is another little admission to which i call your attention nothing delights me so much as to have the prosecution in a moment of forgetfulness or shall we say on purpose admit a fact mr bliss said on page five thousand and eighteen you will bear in mind that the division took place some eight months previous to that that was january first eighteen eighty However that may be, these papers are all papers which on their faces might be innocent and fair and proper. They are papers which under ordinary circumstances might be executed to enable others than the contractor to draw the pay and to be tiled with the department, though it appears, I think, by evidence in this case that no draft could be filed except shortly prior to the quarter as to which it applied. As to these papers, all that we have to say is this. They are the papers on their face, apparently innocent papers, calculated to go through in the ordinary practice as though there was nothing wrong about them. At the same time, the evidence shows that they were papers executed by these several parties at the time of or in the pursuance of the agreement of the division. I do not want anything better. That settles the papers. They were made at the time they agreed to make them. It was the only way in which they could give the party who got the route absolute control of the route. Now, gentlemen, apart from these papers, I believe they have three witnesses. At least they are called witnesses in this case. The first witness that I will call your attention to, and who figures about as early as anybody, is A.W. Moore. I want to ask you a few questions about his testimony. I want you to understand exactly what he swears to and the circumstances. Let us see. 
he swears first that he had a conversation with minor in which he told minor that he would work for him for one hundred and fifty dollars a month and expenses with permission to put on some of his own service i think in oregon and california and that mr minor accepted his terms and employed him as the agent of minor peck and company recollect that minor peck and company second that minor told him to report to dorsey's house to get instructions minor at that time was staying at dorsey's house i do not know whether it was to get instructions from dorsey or from the house or from minor i take it from minor no matter mr moore then swears that he reported to dorsey and dorsey asked him his opinion about the service moore never had been there and did not know one of the routes but dorsey was anxious for his opinion how did he know any more about the service than dorsey there is no evidence that moore knew the price there is no evidence that he knew the amount the government was to pay on a single route he was a stranger then he had another conversation with dorsey in which dorsey told him that they had bid on the long routes with slow time because that was the way to make money not satisfied with that mr dorsey showed him the subcontracts with the blanks and with the changes and then he explained to him the descending scale and he explained to him the percentage of expedition he said dorsey told him forty per cent of the expedition boone swears it was sixty-five per cent there's a little difference not much moore swears that he himself was to have twenty-five per cent of the stealings let us see how that is boone swears the subcontractor was to have sixty-five per cent Rodell swears that brady was to have thirty-three and one-third per cent that leaves one and two-third per cent for the contractor do you see the subcontractor got sixty-five dollars out of one hundred dollars and then brady got thirty-three dollars and thirty-three and one-third cents that makes ninety-eight dollars and thirty-three and one-third cents leaving the contractor one dollar and sixty-six and two-thirds cents that was all he got did you ever know of anybody on earth doing business at a smaller percent and paying for the trouble now mr moore comes in with his statement he says the subcontractor got forty per cent and then he himself got twenty-five per cent that makes sixty-five then according to Verdell, brady was to have thirty-three and one-third per cent that makes ninety-eight and one-third there is the most wonderful coincidence in this whole trial Verdell and boone and moore agree exactly that the contractor would give up ninety-eight and one-third per cent to others and took one and two-thirds himself did you ever know as much humanity in a conspiracy as that did you ever know such a streak of benevolence to strike anybody it reminds me of a case of disinterested benevolence that happened in southern illinois a young man went there to a lawyer and said to him i want to get a divorce i was married at a time when i was drunk and when i sobered up i didn't like the marriage i want a divorce the lawyer asked what do you want of the divorce well he said do you know the widow thompson yes she has been a widow there for about forty years do you know her boy he is the biggest thief in this county 
he went over the ohio river the other day and stole a set of harness and a mule what has that to do with this divorce case well he said i want to get a divorce and i want to marry that widow what for i want to get control of that boy and see if i can't break him from stealing i have got some humanity in me here are s w dorsey his brother his brethren-in-law minor and vale starting a charity conspiracy and out of every hundred dollars they steal they offer ninety-eight dollars and thirty-three cents upon the altar of disinterested friendship you are asked to believe that you will not do it mr moore also swears that he received some money by a check but he does not know whether the check was payable to him or payable to minor and he got a power of attorney signed by minor from john w dorsey and john m peck and then he started s w dorsey assuring him in the meantime that he could tell the people out there that the service would be increased and expedited in a few days mr moore is a peculiar man he says that that suited him exactly he was willing to steal what little he could he was willing to steal for one hundred and fifty dollars a month if he couldn't get any more or he was willing to steal for a part of this stealing if he could not get that he would take an ordinary salary i should think he was a good man from what he says you heard him they were wonderfully anxious to prove by more that dorsey was the head and front of this whole business that was the object and so he swore as to the instructions he said he was instructed to get up petitions so they could be torn off and the names pasted on other petitions he swore he carried out those instructions he swore that major agreed to it and i think a man by the name of mcbow was going to do it yet gentlemen there never was such a petition gotten up major swore here that he had never heard of it that he never dreamed of it and never agreed to it that it was a lie that it was never suggested to him moore went out west and came back as far as denver and at denver met john r minor and then came here and saw dorsey what did he do with dorsey he swears that he went to stephen w dorsey and settled with him and that dorsey settled in a very generous and magnanimous way and did not want to look at his account and did not want to look at the book had no anxiety or curiosity about the items he just said how much is it it happened to be even dollars two hundred and fifty dollars when a man goes out west and has hotel bills and all that sort of thing when he comes to render his expense account it is always an even dollars moore said two hundred and fifty dollars torsey gave it to him never looked at the book at all moore swears that he made the settlement with stephen w dorsey on the eleventh day of july eighteen seventy eight dorsey was then in the senate look at page one thousand four hundred and seventeen you will see that moore has been smart that is what people call smart you know it is never smart to tell a lie very few men have brains to tell a good lie it is an awfully awkward thing to deal with after you have told it you see it will not fit anything else except another lie that you make and you have to start a factory in a short time to make lies enough to support that poor little bantling that you left on the doorstep of your honesty a man that is going to tell a lie should be ingenious and he should have an excellent memory 
that man swore that he settled with dorsey on the eleventh day of july eighteen seventy eight swore it for the purpose of convincing you that dorsey employed him that dorsey gave him the instructions that dorsey was the head and front of the conspiracy i then handed him a little paper and asked him do you know anything about that did you ever sign that and here it is not july eleven that is the day he got the money from dorsey july twenty four eighteen seventy eight received of minor peck and company one hundred and sixty six dollars balance of salary and expenses in full to july eleven eighteen seventy eight signed a w moore to when to july twenty four no sir he settled with dorsey to july eleven eighteen seventy eight the gentleman had forgotten that he gave that if he had only a little more brains he would have avoided the two hundred and fifty dollars that even amount and he would have said dorsey did look over my books and we had a little dispute about some items and we just jumped at two hundred and fifty dollars but he swears that was the actual settlement and then we bring in his receipt in writing dated the twenty fourth of july eighteen seventy eight saying that he had received one hundred and sixty six dollars that day and that it was in full of his salary and expenses not up to that date but up to the eleventh of july eighteen seventy eight if his testimony is true he stole that one hundred and sixty six dollars if his testimony is true he settled with dorsey in full for two hundred and fifty dollars and then he was mean enough to go and get one hundred and sixty six dollars more for the same time no gentlemen he was all right enough about it then he told the falsehood here now what does dorsey swear dorsey swears that he received an order from minor to give this man two hundred and fifty dollars minor swears that if dorsey paid him anything it was on his minor's request that is a perfectly natural proceeding for minor to request dorsey to pay this man two hundred and fifty dollars the man came to dorsey's house dorsey gave him two hundred and fifty dollars upon minor's order he was trusting john r minor for the money and it was none of his business whether minor owed it or not and consequently he did not look at his moore's book now every fact is consistent with the truth of mr dorsey's testimony the fact is consistent with the truth of minor's testimony and the receipt of this man given to minor on the twenty fourth of july eighteen seventy eight demonstrates that he did not tell the truth under oath in this court before you that is the end of mr moore that is the end of him you never need bother about him again as long as you live why they say why didn't you impeach him he impeached himself why didn't you call so-and-so because we had that receipt and that is why no need of killing a man that is dead you need not give poison to a corpse when a thing is buried let it go when a man commits suicide you need not murder him when he destroys his own testimony let it alone it will not hurt you i am not afraid of the testimony of mr moore if these gentlemen can galvanize it into the appearance of life i should be very happy to see them do it everything that he swore upon the stand that in any way touched the defendants is shown not to be true why should dorsey have told him in eighteen seventy eight to get up fraudulent petitions even rodell does not swear that in eighteen seventy nine 
Dorsey instructed him to get up fraudulent petitions, and certainly he would go to the limit of the truth. After Moore made his story out of a piece of true cloth, there would be very few scraps left. He would certainly go clear to the line. And yet, even he does not swear that when he went west to make contracts to get up petitions, he was instructed by Dorsey to get up a fraudulent petition. Not once. And yet Moore swears that in 1878, when Dorsey was in the Senate, he told him to get up these fraudulent petitions. It will not do. Mr. Major swears that what he, Moore, says about it is not true. Mr. McBean swears that what he says about it is not true, and then we have Moore's own receipt showing that it is not true. On page 4,757, Mr. Bliss says, Moore stands before you, therefore, so far as all this testimony is concerned, wholly and absolutely uncontradicted. His testimony was that he was employed by Dorsey. His testimony was that he was settled with by Dorsey. And the testimony of the receipt that he signed is that he settled with Minor and not with Dorsey. The testimony of Minor that he was settled with by Minor and not with Dorsey. The testimony of Dorsey is that he never had any conversation with him in the world except at the time he paid him the $250. They say Rodell was present at the conversation. Why did they not prove it by Rodell after Dorsey had sworn to the contrary? And yet Mr. Bliss tells you that he is not contradicted, utterly uncontradicted. Mr. Kerr, it seems, has an opinion of the same witness, I believe. He says on page 4,511, he says he started out and went to work, as these records show, and made the subcontracts according to his instructions, and got up the petitions according to his instructions. Well, he swears he did not get up a petition at all, not one. He swears that he had not time. And yet these gentlemen say that he got up petitions according to his instructions, and he swears he did not. He swears he told Major to, and that Major signifies his willingness to do it. Major swears that that is a falsehood. Moore swears the same with reference to McBean, and McBean swears that it is a falsehood. Now Mr. Kerr goes on. He fixed them up and changed the language a little in some, and in some he did not take the trouble to change, but he fixed them also that there was a space between the writing and the names so that they could be cut off and pasted on other papers. He expressly denies that he ever fixed a petition in the world. Mr. Kerr, what page? Mr. Ingersoll, you asked the page? Talk to the jury seven days. I say that this man never fixed up a petition, and he never says that he fixed up a petition. Where is the page on which he says it? He was willing to do it, but he had not the time. I will show you that language. There is what they say about this man. Then he says he got a note from Minor and went to Denver and met Minor. That is right. Then Minor offered him a quarter interest in the roots in this vast conspiracy. Let us find what Moore thinks of himself. We will find that on page 1398. He is a good man, worthy of this case, according to the eternal fitness of things. I came to this quicker than I thought I would. It is page 1,396. Question. Did you get up any? Answer. No, sir, I didn't have the time. There it is. 
now of course mr kerr forgot i call your attention to this now to show how little weight such evidence is entitled to in reference to a conversation five years ago when mr kerr could not remember this with a book in front of him mr kerr i asked you for the page in which mr mcbean's testimony appears mr ingersoll mr moore is the witness mr moore swears that he had never got up a petition mr kerr says he did he and mr kerr will have to settle their own difficulty on last friday in reply i think to a question of mr kerr i stated that i thought mcbean swore that mr moore did not make any arrangement with him to get up false petitions in that i was mistaken mr moore swore that he made an arrangement with mcbean to get up petitions he did not quite swear that mcbean agreed to set up false and fraudulent petitions he just came to the edge of it and did not quite swear to it afterwards mcbean was recalled by the government and the government did not ask mcbean whether he had ever agreed to get up any petitions or whether he had made any such arrangement with moore they did not ask him and we did not ask him i do not know why they did not ask him they probably know i also stated that moore swore that he got his instructions about these petitions from dorsey the evidence is that he got his instructions not from dorsey but from minor that minor so instructed him and that thereupon he made the bargain to get up such petitions with a man by the name of major on the reading alturus route i make this correction because i do not want you or anyone else to think that i wish any misstatement made in our favor we do not need it and consequently there is no need of making it you will remember that after moore swore that he made a bargain with major to get up false petitions major swore that it was untrue you will also remember that judge carpenter called for the petitions that were gotten up upon these routes that moore had something to do with and i think he showed you on one route eleven or twelve petitions mr major swears that every petition was honest that statements on each petition were true and that the signatures were genuine all those petitions were shown to you so that the result of the moore testimony is this moore swears that minor told him to get up such petitions he then swears that he made that bargain with major major says it is not true moore almost swears that he made the same bargain with mcbean mcbean says nothing on the subject then we bring here the petitions upon those very routes and especially upon the reading and alturus route and we find no such petitions are described by moore that is enough in regard to mr moore upon that one point this ends chapter four part three of twenty four